Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat and open your Bibles up to Psalm 12, and we will be in Psalm 12 and 14 this morning. Psalm 12 and 14. Have you noticed that traditional sayings about the importance of our words have become outdated? Take, for example, example, talk is cheap. We literally have people that inhabit this world that are multimillionaires for doing nothing but filling the internet with their empty words, which somehow influence others. How about sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Our society now labels words as harmful or hate speech. Simply stating words the mob does not agree with or having a different definition that was the original definition of those words can have the result of destroying a person's reputation and livelihood when the the mob rebels. How about, you have my word? What does that even mean anymore? Does anyone even use this anymore? Our society's view of words has become more confusing than ever before. Words lack all meaning and are twisted and contorted to be whatever the masses desire them to be. But it's not shocking given the nature of the economy of words. You see, in days when literacy was not held by the majority of people, anything written was seen as carrying out great authority. That's why saying, you had my, have my word, was a contract. It was binding. The cost alone to buy paper and ink and have an educated scribe write upon it was too great for any commoner. So the written word was prized, and that made the spoken word valuable. With the invention of the printing press and the increase of education, printed material could be widespread, but as with any great technological advancement, there were both blessings and curses. The blessing was that more people could read the word of God for themselves and be involved in civic activity and know what was going on. The curse was that as the supply of words started to catch up to the demand for those words, and even surpass it, the economics of words shifted and the written word began to lose power and meaning, which subverted the spoken word as well. Now we live in an era where, on the internet alone, there are estimates of 100 trillion words in existence, and that number changes daily. It's a number too large for our minds to even fully comprehend it. It would take thousands of lifetimes for any one person to be able to read all of those words. And that's if those words stayed static in their quantity. But the number of words increases exponentially each year. Do you realize that around 4 million self and professionally published books are produced each year? We now produce more data in one day than all of humanity had at its fingertips up until 2003. Supply of words has now far surpassed demand, and anyone who knows the economic laws of supply and demand knows that this makes the commodity, in this case, words, completely and utterly worthless. But if you think about it, the digression of the importance of words makes sense from a perspective of biblical theology and its view of man's sin. You see, the beginning of the story of God pictures the cosmos in chaos and emptiness. It was empty of words. There were no such thing. Only when God spoke his divine word did the world come into ordered existence. 
When you have a moment, read Genesis chapter 1 and see how often it refers to God speaking or calling order and creation into existence. He did so through his spoken word. Now, prior to this, no words had ever been uttered in the created world. And the creator God, as the original word, was core to his character. It was who he was. Communication began, truth began with his nature. For his words alone bring life, and his words alone establish order. And that word led to the life of mankind. But immediately, in Genesis chapter 2, we see man reflecting God's nature by being the only created animal that is given the spoken word. And mankind, Adam in Hebrew, uses that spoken word immediately to enter into covenant with another human. We see there a word used to bless and covenant, a beautiful reflection of God's image and his activity toward man. Then in Genesis 3, we have the enemy of God do the opposite. He uses faithless words to discredit God. He uses lies, even inherently to accuse him and lie to mankind, bringing confusion and chaos into the created realm. To do so, Satan manipulates the word of God. And this is why Jesus would later call him the great liar and the father of lies who brings death by his words and is therefore a murderer from the beginning because of his words. From that point on, since lies and accusation and flattery, slander, they've all been introduced, the chaos of sin would go from bad to worse. And we see this in Genesis 11. Mankind so pervasively and utterly depraved and arrogant, despite having been wiped out in the flood just generations before, they align to rebel against the one true creator God. And as a result, God curses something. What does he curse? Their ability to use this gift of language, the gift of words, if you will, that he has graciously given them. Their tongues become confusing and unable to impart truth or even team up in chaotic rebellion. They can do nothing because they babble. And this contrast of the pure word of God versus the false and confusing word of Satan continues throughout the arc of the biblical narrative. What you see is a slow but sure descent of mankind into the devaluing of God's word. And instead, there's an elevation of faithless words emanating from the kingdom of darkness. For example, Scripture obviously portrays the power of our words. We see this throughout the Proverbs, for example, that a word fitly spoken is like treasure. It's like a golden apple, it says, encased in a frame. It's beautiful. And yet you see the constant twisting of faithful words to become the opposite. Isaiah 5.20 talks about this. Woe to those who call, who speak evil as good and good as evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who contort with their words. The Bible declares that as God gives humanity over to its desire for confusion under its own lordship, truth becomes scarce. We become immune to truth. This is from Amos. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Notice that this doesn't say that there will be a lack of churches. It just says that there will be a famine of the word spoken. Romans 1, which we have looked at often over the last few months, confirms this with the statement that mankind will suppress the truth in order to elevate the lies we hope to propagate. 
And the lie that is primary is that we are God and the true creator God is ours to command. When you see the stark truth, the stark, con- excuse me, the stark contrast between truth and lies that the Bible portrays, it is a sobering scene. Now praise God that he will not give humanity over to this lie completely. For the solution that he sent in order to undo the power of the lies of Satan and the liar himself is the purified and perfect living word of God. Listen to how the Apostle John describes this Savior in the book of John 1.1. You probably are familiar with it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, it is through God's word spoken to the Jewish people, then exemplified in Christ, the very word of God, and finalized in the apostles in the New Testament, and then proclaimed through the church for 2,000 years that truth is victorious over the lie. But then as the truth of Christ's gospel spread forth, we see in Acts that words became the proof of the gospel's advance. The book of Acts shows us that as the gospel truth moves forward from Judea to Samaria to the Gentiles and the ends of the earth, the undoing of languages at Babel was now being restored so that all mankind could declare the truth of the word of God. And as each group in the book of Acts receives the gospel, each group starts to express the gospel in their own tongue, their own language, to declare the glory of the creator God that had saved them. And this is what is happening throughout the church age as the gospel advances even further through the church the world over. This is why we center our entire liturgy around the ministry of the word. It is what brings life the truth of God's word. And the end of the biblical story, it pictures this living word of God, Jesus Christ himself, proclaiming this in Revelation 22, verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. It is through the truth of God's word that he is restoring and will restore his creation and bring his kingdom to bear in fullness. Friends, words matter especially the words that you're listening to and the words that you're speaking. All of creation, all of humanity throughout all of history is caught up in a cosmic battle between the faithful word of the creator God and the faithless words of the enemy of God. We will either stand firm on the former or we will fall to the latter. But please hear me, friends. We cannot wait for our experience or our feelings to confirm the power of the Word of God. We must decide by faith now that the Bible we hold in our hands is indeed the inspired, inerrant, and sufficient Word of God before the lie ever even creeps into our consciousness. Otherwise, we will slowly but surely fall to the deception of the lies of the enemy. 
In our Psalms today, Psalm 12 and 14, we will see this background of biblical theology in our midst. We will see this same battle waged. As we have seen, though, the beauty of the Psalms is that it does not stop at the theological background we've just summarized. It does not stop at the cognitive. It goes much deeper, and the the Psalms are meant to engage our hearts in addition to our minds, because the psalmist speaks poetically in a way that allows us to identify with him. He represents our emotions when he cries out to God and describes the sinful nature of this world. The result is that we find ourselves on the inside of the psalm, agreeing with the psalmist. But then the beauty of the psalms is that it goes even deeper than that. We also see and feel the call of the psalm to bring us to a point of introspection and conviction, where we ask, even as was prayed before by Ryan, are we truly on the side of the psalmist, or are we the one the psalmist is speaking about? Do we unknowingly stand in the place of those who are coming against the psalmist as his enemies. The songbook of God's people does this purposefully so that our only response can be worship and repentance or stark rebellion. Now, these two psalms before us are no different. They will cause us to discern between the faithless words of the enemy or the faithful word of God. They will press us to choose one upon which we will stand. And this morning, we will be given that choice, the choice between faithless words or the faithful word. Now, we've already heard Psalm 14 read aloud this morning, so let's now read Psalm 12 together as a body as we collectively sit under the lordship of God's faithful word. Let's read it now, beginning in Psalm 12, verse 1. Not the heading, but verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The first thing that we see David point out in both Psalms is that faithless words display the pervasive depravity of humanity. Faithless words display the pervasive depravity of humanity. And we'll see this in both psalms at the beginning. In Psalm 12, we hear the heartfelt cry for help from David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Why does David cry for help here? Because he is surrounded by evil. The godly are no more. It is like a soldier trapped behind enemy lines, and there is none to help. 
It is a cry of loneliness, a cry of hopelessness. Verse 8 captures it very explicitly. The bookend of, of Psalm 12. It says, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. It's as if they are celebrating pridefulness. It's as if they are celebrating rebellion against God's order. Does this sound familiar? It is as if prey is caught in the middle of a pack of lions waiting to pounce. But this pack is not just motivated out of hunger, but of vile and perverse wickedness to do harm for the sake of harm. Violence against this trapped party is exalted. Friends, do you ever feel this way when you look at the news or you just exist in the world, or maybe even in the midst of your job as your employer forces worldly philosophies and lies upon you. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of darkness revel in their wickedness. They don't just sustain it, they revel in it and declare their confusion and utter amazement when anyone does not agree with their desire to rebel against God's wisdom. But David turns to find those who see the same sinful chaos. He turns to see those who have aligned with him in the truth of God's word. And what does he find? He finds no one, for the godly one is gone. The faithful, meaning those faithful to the covenant God, Yahweh, they've vanished. Notice this word vanished. It is not as if they never existed. It is that those who once stood firm in the covenant with David and with the Lord have now ceased as they step over and side with those who are ungodly and faithless. Have you ever felt this same betrayal? Those who you thought would always stand firm with you in the word of God are now drifting or maybe even now are gone and stand in opposition to the word of God. It is a feeling that completely takes the life out of you. As David stands in bewilderment among this throng of wickedness, he notes four characteristics of the wicked. And interestingly, notice that each of them fall into the category of how they use words. They lie, they flatter, they deceive in duplicitousness, and they boast. God uses his words, his word, to speak truth about his character, truth about mankind, truth about creation and about reality. Mankind, however, follows in the footsteps of the father of lies and uses words to gain an advantage over one another. The motivation is self-protection and advancement of self over and above the other. It comes from a heart of greed, a heart of selfishness, a heart of perverse desire to be God and Lord. And each of these ways of speaking, each of these ways of manipulative speech come from that foundation of an evil, a pervasively evil heart. Have you ever caught yourself, friends, just lying out of the blue and you almost look at yourself as if, where did that come from? Is there anyone else in here who's done that besides me? Literally everyone should be raising their hand. I know all of you because I know the word. You have all done it. Where there's this person standing there that you're like, I don't really think much of them, but for some reason I'm trying to impress them and I'm literally telling a lie. 
It shows the depravity of our heart. This is why I can't understand when people say, oh, humans are innately good. Are you kidding me? We're all liars. Every human that's ever existed. And that's what's written first. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. The people of God were to be different from the pagans around them. Pagans would use their words to manipulate the false gods and to manipulate one another. You can just think of the story of Balak and the pagan priest Balaam. Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel, but God caused Balaam's mouth to instead speak blessing over the people because he is the one true God and he is the one, uh, they are the one true people that God wants to bless. And so he forced Balaam to not speak lies, but to speak truth that originated from the heart of God rather than lies that originated from Balaam's heart, the heart of man. And friends, this is why, coincidentally, the people of God are to do the opposite of the pagan world. This is part of what identifies us as the people of God. It is core to God's covenant people that we are to exist in truth. And Jesus speaks the baseline of this when he says this in Matthew 5:37, "Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." Friends, it has become the norm in our society to overextend ourselves. So that when we tell someone we will do something and then don't do it, it's, well, we all do that, don't we? I just overextended myself. No, you lied. You literally lied. I'll be there. Hey, I wasn't there. Sorry about that. That's lying. Don't let the culture tell you otherwise. Stop overextending yourself. And then you can let your yes be yes or your no be no. I feel for our poor volunteer coordinator who is constantly lied to. This doesn't mean if you're sick or you can't make it, that's totally understandable. But often we as Christians lie through our teeth as if it is normal in everyday things. Friends, this is not the people of God. This is what pagans do. Commitment should signify the people of God. This is why one of the defining characteristics of God's covenant people is found in Zechariah. Zechariah 8.16, these are the things that you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. When the people of God stand fully in obedience to the covenant God, they speak truth with one another. And this is the background from which Paul pulls when he twice tells the Ephesian church that they are to speak the truth in love to one another. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. But David is saying in the psalm that within his context of the covenant people of God, even there, no one is living within the covenant. They are faithless, but instead lying to everyone around them. Next, he notes flattery. The people of God are to speak honestly with one another. We are to encourage, but we are also to exhort. And that is why the book of Proverbs speaks often about giving and receiving conviction. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's speaking about flattery. All correction now is seen by our society as harmful or hurtful or shaming. Have you noticed this in our society? Hey, that's a stupid thing to do. Don't be a fool. Do the right thing. <gasps> How dare you shame me? 
No, I'm just trying to help you not be an idiot. That's the truth of correction. Don't be an idiot. It's the loving thing to do. Next time your child is about to walk into traffic, flatter them. See how it goes for you. No, none of us would do that. We know that's terrible parenting. So why do we propagate the idea elsewhere? Why do we allow what society is stating seep into the church? No tone is soft enough anymore to give correction. Rather than pursuing truth and wisdom, it becomes the practice to run away from correction and instead find others that will tell you what you want to hear. Content to sit in sin, we would rather have our ears tickled so that we could be encouraged in our stupidity than hear the correction that will grow us more into the image of Christ. We refuse correction now to our own detriment. For the day will come when the grace of correction is no longer available, and it has been replaced by the fearful expectation of judgment from the just judge. Friends, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So we see lying. We see flattery. Third is speaking with a double heart. The wooden Hebrew here is they speak with a heart and a heart. Another way to say it is they speak out of both sides of their mouth. They think one thing in their mind and heart, but then they say something else. They are duplicitous and hypocritical. And last, they boast. David prays that the Lord might actually cut off the tongue and lips that use these perverse means of speaking. First on his list are all those who boast with their mouths, saying, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Notice what is happening here. They are claiming that their words, their speech is sovereign. In other words, their truth, their truth, my truth, is higher than God's truth. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day where this is now rampant in our society and it has become so pervasive that it has crept into the church and overtaken it. We use foolish phrases like lived experience and speaking my truth as if these are biblical phrases, as if Subjective experience outranks the objective truth of God's reality. Brothers and sisters, I cannot be more clear to command you on behalf of the Lord, do not buy into this manner of speech. It is satanic and serves no purpose other than to advance rebellion against a loving and good creator God. I cannot be more clear. There is one truth, and it is God's truth. Do not convince yourself otherwise. Well, in Psalm 14, this foolishness of speech is pictured from even a different angle. Take a look there at Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Whew. Pretty pointed, isn't it? David quotes here from the fool who says in the depths of his senses, there is no God. 
They are lying to themselves in order to justify their own sinful behavior. It's as if they're saying, God doesn't see me. It's like the two-year-old who covers their eyes and believes mom and dad can't see them because they can't see mom and dad. It is foolishness. And then he pictures God sitting in his throne room, looking with derision upon the faithlessness of man who is living life as if there is no need for a creator and provider. And this practical atheism we have been talking about in Psalms is huge here in Psalm 14. David continues his statement that the faithful have vanished, but here he takes it a step further and states clearly that the totality of mankind has become abominable. And we're not talking snowmen here. Corrupt and faithless. The background that gives weight to this statement is threefold. One comes from the progression of the Psalms, where a few Psalms ago, David cried out on behalf of the righteous in Psalm 10, and even in Psalm 13, asking why God had disappeared. But then in Psalm 11, as Ryan taught us last week, we saw that God is securely seated. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's securely seated on his throne, in his heavenly throne room. And so the righteous can be at peace because he is there with them, walking with them, holding them close and tight. But here, God is again seated on his throne, but the language shows that he is as if from a distance because he's looking in judgment upon the wicked who are living as practical atheists. And the second picture that gives weight to this is that the wording is very similar to the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where God comes down to see their corruption and their absolute rebellion. And do you recall what his solution was? We talked about it earlier. It was to confuse their speech, their words, and therefore their understanding. You see, we worry about the words coming out, the babbling, but recognize that part of the curse was that they would no longer understand. They would not have understanding. It's as if they had become deaf even though they were hearing things. I wonder how many of us in the church have that same issue. We hear the word of God, but we are deaf to it because we are so basing our life upon lies that the enemy is telling us and that we are telling ourselves. And so this curse in Genesis was to undo the gracious gift of understanding and wisdom that God had given to reflect himself. And the third picture that gives weight to it is the story of the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah. God comes down in that story and discusses with Abraham there in Genesis 18 whether or not he would destroy the city. Abraham pleaded with God to spare the city if even 10 righteous people lived in it. Just 10! Just 10, Lord! Abraham must have breathed a sigh of relief. He won't destroy the city if he finds 10. But you know the story. God could not find 10. And so he destroyed the city. It's this background from which Paul quotes this psalm in Romans 3 that we heard earlier. But rather than just two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Paul applies the same lack of righteousness across the whole of creation. Would you turn there with me to Romans? Take a look at Romans starting in chapter 2. And we're going to read for a bit here, but I want you to just sit in Romans 2 and 3, and I want you to hear this Biblical theology of words and truth and lies and how pervasive it is. In essence, Psalm 12 and Psalm 14 are giving us a bit of a systematic theology behind 
the sin and the salvation that's displayed here in Romans 2. Start with me in Romans 2, 28. And again, we're going to read for a while, but let's pay attention and see uh, the, the subject of speech that's used to describe God and man and our rebellion against his righteous truth. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, in other words, a covenant person of God, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Not much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What were they given? The words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery." And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Paul point, Paul's point here is that while God chose the Jewish people as a whole, those that were truly his were not so by sheer ethnicity, but showed they were his by living under his lordship, under his truth, under his word. Those of the kingdom of darkness will continue to lie, continue to boast in their own merit, their own worthiness, that they are innately not that bad, and therefore God is expected to justify them. 
But those that are of the kingdom of light will have their mouths stopped in humility before God and will open them merely to proclaim his grace and his righteousness because he is the one who has justified. Friends, as we read this description of mankind and the work of God's grace, it should do a couple of things for us. And as we pair it with Psalm 12 and Psalm 14, it should work in us in a couple of ways. First, it should cause us to check and see whether we have bought into the lie that humanity is innately good and God is mean for wanting to judge or bring wrath upon anyone. Have you bought into that even a little bit? Because a little bit is a lot. This is a man-centered view of the world and therefore an errant view, a lie. A God-centered view will cause us to see a holy and good God towards whom mankind has rebelled and still rebels. And when we understand the pervasiveness of our sin, it will cause us to bow humbly before God and spend every day coming to his gracious throne, asking him to change our hearts to be more like his. Secondly, it should cause us to check and see where there is evidence of these same actions in ourselves. Now, for believers, I am guessing that none of these behaviors are purposeful. When I mentioned the example earlier about your word being your bond and being where you say you're going to be, it got real quiet in here like the air got sucked out of the room. So I know there's conviction, and some people probably in their minds are saying, why would you shame me for that? I'm not shaming you. I'm trying to conform you into the image of God. Don't think I'm here to be mean to you. The reality is, is that you probably weren't purposeful in those things. And therefore, like the world, you say, well, my sin should be excused then. No, you're still responsible for it. And so have we fallen into these habits that have more of the look of the world than God's people without even meaning to, without even knowing it? Do we, for example, flatter because we believe the core of God's heart for us is to be nice to one another rather than to be holy? Do we, for example, speak out of both sides of our mouth because we have a strong fear of man and will change what we say depending upon who we're speaking to? Do we, for example, minimize God's truth because we are worried it will offend and we are more worried about losing an earthly relationship than holding fast to our relationship with God. When we have sin in our lives, do we lie to those who ask how we are doing because of our fear of man? And God forbid we be discipled in that sin. In that case, we have to wonder if we treasure our reputation above our holiness. Or perhaps we are buying into the lies of the world that our words are more important than God's words. Perhaps we should do a quick check to see how much of the speech we are taking in and how much of the speech we are giving out has to do with truth and how much has to do with foolishness. Friends, if any of these are the case, the prayer of David is not for those people out there, but it's for ourselves. Father, we should pray, I beg of you to cut off the flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. And Lord, 
That tongue and those lips are in this mouth. Help my heart to be purified so that my lips speak truth and righteousness to my neighbors. This should be the prayer of our church family. Lord, allow us to love one another, not just in intention, but in truth. For it is our words that display our hearts. And David explains this in the next section of both Psalms. As we find that faithless words underlie the affliction of the vulnerable. Faithless words underlie the affliction of the other, but specifically here, David talks about the vulnerable. Go back to the Psalms, if you would. In Psalm 12, 5, he says this, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he belongs. In 14.4, he says this, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? He points out in verse 6, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. You see, these faithless words, they underlie and support the affliction of the other. Now, Jesus puts forth the reality that the words we use display what is at the core of our heart. He does this in Matthew 12, 33 and 37. And this is what's spoken of here in our Psalms this morning. David is describing this same truth. Let's look at it here. Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That is a sobering section of Scripture, is it not? In Psalm 12, God speaks. We've heard the wicked boast against God, but then God speaks up and immediately takes up the cause of the vulnerable there in Psalm 12. They're noted here as the poor and the needy. And they are plundered here in the ESV, but the word in the Hebrew could mean oppressed or destroyed. There is violence done to them. The wicked, feeling as though they are invincible, use lies and flattery and two-faced hypocrisy to take advantage of those around them. In our society, we find this in many different areas. Ideologies and worldviews contrary to the truth of God's word are proclaimed by everybody. Politicians, movie stars, school teachers, counselors, psychiatrists, pastors, priests, and news reporters. For all the supposed progress our society has made, the true poor are still in poverty. The poverty line holds many in the bondage of financial instability, and it's increasing. The difference between the upper and lower classes of society continues to widen, and yet we're more progressive, we say. And the children of our society, the truly vulnerable, are aborted, and then they're used as guinea pigs if they survive, so that ill-informed and evil ideologies can advance their greedy and perverse causes. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic, go watch all the YouTube videos of pride parades where they yell, we're coming for your children. 
Friends, this is not a political speech. This is the reality we live in. The wicked want to devour the vulnerable. In Psalm 14, David speaks in exasperation. He says in verse 4, Have they no knowledge, all these evildoers? In other words, do they think they will get away with this? And the answer is, oh, yes, they do. Because of the complete perversion of the human heart, they and friends, we are blinded to the idea that we will stand in the judgment. Friends, do something for me this week. Take a look of your entire week when the week is done and ask yourself how much of my activity and my actions and my words were informed by the coming judgment of God. And if you're like me, you will say, not much. Friends, that is cause for conviction and repentance. David here continues in his bewilderment as he describes the wicked as those who devour God's righteous people in a way as if they give no thought to it whatsoever. It's like a normal person snacking on a piece of bread. For the wicked, they have no thought of God whatsoever, and so they think they can go on harming those around them. And again, our society mirrors this truth. Slowly but surely, the one group of people that are seen as truly sinful by the virtuous society around us are those who desire God's reign over creation. Do you feel like David as you read these descriptions? Do you look around and wonder where all the God-fearing people have gone? Where have all the true Christians disappeared to? Well, it's helpful to know that we are not alone in that feeling, and David will counsel us and model for us the solace we can take in God when we feel this way. But before we move on to that, I want us to take a look at these simple verses from a different slant. When we read these descriptions of the wicked in Scripture, there is a bit of hyperbolic tone. And if you are anything like me, your mind again leans in the direction of all those people out there, and I've just described that, and this is true, Right? The really bad people that you see on the news are just full of so much violence and rage that they enjoy harming others in their antisocial pathology. And there is a truth to that. But the people being discussed here are those who use lies and duplicity to convince themselves that they're not doing anything wrong, that it's like second nature to them. And how does any human get into this place? Well, if you speak lies often enough to yourself, eventually it becomes your truth. Any counselor who has sat in the counseling room long enough will tell you that this is at the heart of many, if not most, pathologies. And here David is portraying the wicked pagan nations who have exiled his people. They think nothing of the wrong that they are doing because of the lie of idolatry that tells them they have the right to do so. When our hearts are deceitful and wicked, and we live in practical atheism as if God were not sovereign and all seeing in our lives, we begin to believe lies that are in rebellion to his truth. And this could be any of us, friends, not just those people out there. And this is compounded if we are not regularly and consistently in his word, because that is the only, the only antidote to the lies we are hearing around us and the lies we are telling ourselves internally that lead to the harm of others. Friends, think about some of the lies that our society advances. And think about how these have crept into the church. My actions are not so bad in comparison to others. I'm innately good. If you were married to my spouse or had my kids, you'd treat them the way I do too. I deserve better. 
I'm the victim. I'm not hurting anyone with my drinking and drug use, pornography use, or sexual appetite. After all, we're all adults here. My sinful proclivities or lifestyle can't be helped. God made me this way. It's his fault, so he has to deal with my sporadic sinful nature. I shouldn't be held responsible. It's a mental health issue. Authority has been abusive, so we shouldn't have to deal with any authority at all. Friends, I could go on for hours. These and so many others serve no one. Not God, not ourselves, not others. Well, they might serve one person, and that's the father of lies. And yet they cycle through our society and in our own hearts, leading us to elevate ourselves at the destruction of others. Unfortunately, the church is very similar. What lies cycle through the church? I don't feel loved, therefore I must have been harmed. I don't feel like part of this church. I deserve better. I'm the victim. The next church will be the place I feel like I belong. I can't be part of a church where I disagree with secondary doctrine. Other churches have abused and harmed, so I probably can't trust this church. God's okay with my sin. He knows that my situation is special. Friends, these and many other lies lead to broken hearts and broken relationships because decisions are reached, relationships cease, and reconciliation becomes impossible. And the people of God, those that are to be the poor in spirit, are devoured and ground down. Friends, I want to ask you, what lies circle through your heart and mind? The biggest lie that Satan has foisted onto our culture is that my own words, actions, and attitudes affect no one but myself. And, at the same time, others' words, actions, and attitudes have an immediate and harmful effect on me. It's a me-centric view. Friends, this is so contrary to God's word, so contrary to truth, and so contrary to what the church is called to be. Where have you bought into these lies, and how might you repent today? One way, dear brothers and sisters, is to make sure that you are bringing your thoughts and attitudes under the lordship of Christ as he uses his word in your life. Friends, if you are doing nothing else in devotion this month, I beg of you, step into Proverbs in the book of James. Read one chapter from each a day. Step into the wisdom books of God and bring your thinking, your life, under the lordship of his truth. Friends, the enemy wants to destroy us. The enemy wants us to believe in the lies. It is in his word that we find faithlessness, but it is in the word of God that we will find truth, the truth that will rescue us from the lies. And that is what we see last and next, is that salvation comes from the faithful word of God. Take a look at Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, and Psalm 14, verses 5 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. 
and in Psalm 14, verses 5 through 7. They are there in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. He would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, where the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. In Psalm 12, we just saw God speak, and what did he say? He said that he would arise on behalf of the poor, the vulnerable, and place them in the safety for which they belong. In other words, he will rescue them. But unlike the false and empty words of the wicked, God's words can be fully trusted. For David says the words of Yahweh are pure words. Friends, they're pure because he speaks them out of his own pure and righteous character and not out of any desire to manipulate or gain advantage over others. When you are the one being in all of the cosmos who already innately contains all authority, why would you need to manipulate to gain authority? When you are the one who has cattle on a thousand hills and has all the riches of the universe at your fingertips, in fact, you created them, why would you need to manipulate for greedy purposes? See, only God can be pure in his words because only God has no need to manipulate. This is the truth of the purity of God's holy character. And this is why we can trust his words. Therefore, his word is so pure that it is as if silver were smelted and refined seven times the number of perfection in biblical numerology so that all the dross is burned off. And so David can remind himself that although it seems like the faithful have vanished and maybe even standing there looking around and seeing faithlessness around him, maybe he was even convicted of the faithlessness in himself. Even though all this is true, even though vileness surrounds him, David tells himself the truth that he can trust in the pure words of the Lord in the midst of all of the chaos. And the truth is, is that Yahweh will hold fast his people. He will keep his people. He will protect them. He will guard his people from the generation that surrounds them. And friends, he will even guard us from the lies of the enemy that seep into our own consciousness, that start to draw us away from the Lord. But the Lord is more powerful. He is faithful to his people. And friends, this is such good news for us. When we feel as though the godly and the faithful have vanished, we, like David, can cry out for salvation from the Lord and know that he will hold us strong even if our emotions tell us differently. Even if we are trapped in the depths of hopelessness, we can trust in the pure word of God that he will hold us strong. And this is not a promise for some day far off. This is a promise that he has kept for every generation of his people. For no matter what has come against his people, we are safe and victorious over the lies and manipulation of the enemy. For in Christ, in the Messiah, even death has been conquered through Christ's death and resurrection in our place. So we need not fear anything. What can man do to me? Psalm 14 backs this up further. For although the generation that surrounds us seems like they can boast, one day judgment will come and they will be filled with great terror. Trust in that fact. For God does not forsake his people. And as David says, 
He is with the generation of the righteous. Psalm 12, this generation will be cut off, the generation of the evil. We will be protected from it. Psalm 14, he is with the generation of the righteous. The world may want to destroy the poor and vulnerable and oppressed, even the poor in spirit, but Yahweh is actually a refuge for those that the world hopes to destroy. Friends, it is psalms such as this that have for centuries been the salve of God to the poor, to the enslaved, and to the truly oppressed, and those suffering persecution for their loyalty to Christ. The world desires to bring shame upon them, but the Lord is the refuge for those whom the world wishes to devour. Friends, we who are in Christ might feel as though the world around us is closing in, or we may even on certain days feel as though we are about to fall to the lies that are ruminating in our own heads. We may feel as though our spirit is in exile. But it is because of this that this psalm, these psalms can speak to us and encourage us in a huge way. For David is crying out for the fullness of Yahweh's kingdom to come forth. He is anticipating a day when Yahweh would bring the fullness of salvation for his people, which includes both a glorification of his people and judgment and destruction for the wicked. The word in verse 7 of Psalm 14 can be translated their fortunes, as it is here in the ESV, but it also can be translated exile or captivity. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the exile of his people. Because the traditional author here is seen as David, it is not the Babylonian exile that's relevant here. But David is anticipating a day when all of Yahweh's people can find security within the walls of his kingdom. They will no longer feel as though they are in exile in the midst of an enemy kingdom. Friends, do you know what this feels like? To feel as if you're in exile in the midst of an enemy kingdom. With every passing day, it seems more and more as though we are in exile in a world that is not our home. But there will come a day when the Lord will restore us from the exile in which we find ourselves. And when that happens, those of us who have wrestled and been won over by God, those of us who have been reborn and given a new identity in Christ, like Jacob being given the name Israel, we will rejoice and be glad in the truth and promises of our God. So do not fear, brothers and sisters. When you feel as though the faithful have vanished around you, do not fear. For God's words are faithful, and he has promised that he hears our groanings and our calls for his salvation, and he will save us. He will arise, as in Psalm 12, and his words, unlike the wicked, can be counted upon to be proven true. Eternity will prove that God is true and everyone else is a liar. And all the proof we need is found in the pure word of God, Jesus Christ. For in Christ, God's word of honor, God's covenantal promise was established forever. It is a covenant that can never be broken. For his death and resurrection and enthronement solidified once and for all that he will not leave or abandon his people. Even if the world rises up and calls for martyrdom of every Christian, we have nothing to fear. Christ has brought us eternal life and security and peace in him. He has died in our place, paid the price for our sin, and resurrected us to eternal life, a life which can never be taken away. Friend, if you're sitting here today and you want that eternal life, you want to be one with Christ and accept him as both Savior and Lord, 
I would love to talk with you after the service about what that looks like and what a life walking with Christ is all about. Friends, if you're sitting here today and you are thinking, man, I'm one of those people that has bought into those lies. I've been doing these things and I didn't even realize it and conviction has come upon me today. Friends, do not sit in shame as the world is telling you you must when you get in gain correction. Instead, rejoice, for faithful are the wounds of a good Savior, a true friend, who has given you the grace of correction so that you might become more like him and might reflect him more to the world around you. Friends, correction is not harm. It is grace from a good God who loves us deeply. And so that shows that he is with us and his word is pure and can be trusted. These psalms this morning, they remind me of the words of the prophet Isaiah. And this is the last place I'll turn you. Would you turn to Isaiah 59? I know we're going a little bit long, but we're almost done. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 14. It's a beautiful section of Scripture. And it captures what David is proclaiming about his own day and what we can declare about our day says this, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and a brightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. This sounds like David, doesn't it? The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, how do we know that the word of the Lord is pure and that he is faithful in his covenant promises to his people? Because you are sitting here today. I am sitting here today acting in the ministry of the word of truth. We still have his words upon our lips. We have not been given over to the lies completely. And so therefore, we can trust in our God. We exist in a time that Isaiah could have been describing. Truth is missing in the public square. Justice is lacking. And God is looking around and finding no one to intercede. And so he, out of the abundance of his own righteousness, brought forth salvation and redemption through the one who sits at his right hand. The book of Revelation has the same image as God cries out and says, who is fit? Who could do this? And who steps forward? The wonderful Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ steps forward to take on the sins of the world and to redeem his people. Jesus Christ is the purest word of all. The word that we encounter amongst one another in worship, 
and within his sacred word that we hold in our hands. And it is those that are his, Christ's true people, that will hold on to and proclaim his truth as unpopular as it is and as unpopular as it will become. And so while the world around us exalts in its vileness, God is our refuge and protector amidst the war of words. His word alone will protect us from the lies that surround us. Friends, my heart breaks as I encounter more and more self-proclaimed Christians who so easily discard the word of God as an unnecessary part of their faith and spiritual life. Brothers and sisters, recognize today that you have a choice every moment of every day to embrace the faithful word of God or to be overcome by the faithless words of the kingdom of darkness. I pray, and we as elders pray for you each and every day, that you will stand firm in the truth of God's word. Friends, it is only in the faithful word of God that we will find the refuge, peace, and strength we need when we feel surrounded by the vileness of the wicked. And so I beg each of you, out of love this morning, hold on to the word of God alone as truth, the faithful and pure word of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for a church that so loves your word that they're willing to sit through a long sermon. But Lord, we are so thankful for your word this morning, written and active in Christ and through the Spirit in our lives, that we praise you. Lord, you could have easily given us over to the lies in our own minds and hearts and the lies that our society propagates, but you have saved us and helped us by the truth of your word and called us to yourself. And so we come to you now in praise and thanksgiving, even praising you and thanking you for conviction you may have brought upon our hearts this morning to help us conform more into your image and put aside the falsehood that we once stood so firmly in. Thank you for speaking truth to our hearts and opening our eyes to the truth of your existence and your redemption and salvation. And Lord, as we step now into communion, we pray, Lord, that you would do that work even more, that you would open our hearts and minds even more to the truth of who you are and help us walk in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.